someone who's out there who God has in mind to be the pastor of this church. All right, enough ads. We continue with First Peter. Um, we are in the second chapter, verses 11 to 17. Um, let me just say this as I start, because I, I know that I know there'll be some uh, some of you that will think I, I wish they would just not talk politics from the pulpit. So I will say this about politics: there is no room for partisan politics from the pulpit, not at all. I don't care what party you're part of. I don't care what what group you're part of, the pastor of the church or whoever's preaching, it, we're not partisan people in that sense. We're God, we should be gospel people and, and sharing that. It may feel at times like it's partisan because it'll, it'll sound like it's coming from one side or the other. But the word is to all sides. All right? Fair enough. And so the, the pulpit does and should um, address the culture and the government. And um, the church has been doing that before it was a church. We've been doing that since the prophets in Israel. And we should be addressing the, the injustices that we see that God just doesn't want. So that said, here we dive in. You can leave now if you want. It's okay. Um, I, I won't take offense, actually. Um, <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and exiles, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Just, just context-wise, remember the context of First Peter. These are people that have been dispersed, Jews who have become Christians, people that used to be in, in Jerusalem area and surroundings, and they've been scattered now to Asia Minor. It's called the Diaspora. And they're in this dispersion, and they're viewed as aliens and exiles in a foreign land. And Peter's trying to help them understand how to live in a foreign place and have a witness for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Pray with me. <clears throat> God, I come to this text with some fear and trembling, uh, only because um, uh, we can uh, sometimes uh, say things and project things that uh, we may not understand how they sound. Pray that clarity happens and that uh, we will hear your word to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I, again, I begin uh, with, I could be wrong, um, and, uh, and start there, and you can challenge and differ with what I have to say. What I have to say is not gospel. Never is. What I have to say is how I hear the gospel. And hopefully that is always what happens here. And um, we are aliens and exiles. And our citizenship is in a homeland that is not of this world. What does that mean? First, what does it mean to honor the emperor and to be citizens of a country? Like they were there, honoring the emperor, the emperor of Rome. And they were now subjects in a foreign land. I have a friend in Scotland, a pastor in Edinburgh, and, and Andrew used to always, he used to just get after the royal family sometimes, because they would say things that he would just look at them like, Tony, or Tony Blair, I think, was, was, was the prime minister at the time. I was talk to the citizens of of Britain. And my friend Andrew would just look at that and go, we're not citizens, we're subjects. We have a monarch, we have a queen, and we're subjects of the queen. It's different. We're not mere citizens of a country. And I thought he, he would just get worked up over that, and it was wonderful to hear. But this idea of, uh, for us as Christians, that we are um, also subjects of the king and that we abide by what the king asks us to do. In 1933, the state church in Germany adopted this following statement. I quote, God has created me a German. Germanism is a gift of God. God wants me to fight for my Germany. Military service is in no sense a violation of Christian conscience, but is obedience to God. The believer possesses the right of revolution against a state that furthers the powers of darkness. This is the German state church speaking to the country. Gehring's in attendance at this. The believer also has the right in the face of a church board that does not unreservedly acknowledge the exaltation of the nation. For a German, the church is the fellowship of believers who are obligated to fight for a Christian Germany. The goal of the faith movement of German Christians is an evangelical German Reich or national church. Let me let those words just sink in a little bit. This is the German National Church in a conference in 1933 in preparation for the atrocities committed during World War II. The church was being prepped to be complicit. In response to this, there was a movement within the church called the Confessing Church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of that. Karl Barth was part of it. 
Martin Niemöller was part of it. You might remember Martin Niemöller. He was the, the theologian who said when they came for the trade unionists, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. When they came for the Catholics, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Catholic. When they came for the Jews, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak. Martin Niemöller was arrested and put in a, a concentration camp just outside of Berlin, a place I visited called Sachsenhausen, one of the camps um, where literally hundreds of thousands of prisoners were executed and buried in mass graves behind the walls in this sleepy little town lined with linden trees and looking quite lovely. These people, known as the Confessing Church, created a statement of their own. And we have, as Reformed people, as Presbyterians, we've adopted the statement that they made in 1934. It's called the Theological Declaration of Barman. They met in the town of Barman, and they came up with this response to the National Church's statement. And this is what they said. They begin with our text from this morning. So they start with, number one, um, the next slide, I think. Very good. Fear God, honor the emperor. The whole statement begins with statements of scripture. So they root their, unlike the, the national church, that's rooted their statement in ideology, the, the Barman Confession is rooted in Scripture. And it begins with this statement, Fear God and Honor the Emperor. In fact, all the articles in the Barman Declaration start with Scripture, and then they say what that means. They interpret that. So this is what it says. Next slide. Um, and when I stop talking, that will be the last slide <laughs> for this section. Scripture tells us that in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has, by divine appointment, the task of providing for justice and peace. It fulfills this task by means of the threat of threat and exercise of force. according to the measure of human judgment and human ability. The church acknowledges the benefit of this divine appointment in gratitude and reverence before him. In other words, the providing for justice and peace. Not necessarily the means. Because it calls to mind the kingdom of God, a just place and a peaceful place. God's commandment in righteousness and thereby the responsibility both of rulers and of the ruled, it trusts and obeys the power of the word by which God upholds all things. And the word here meaning not merely scripture, but the word meaning the living presence of Jesus. So, you can leave it. Yeah, that's fine. The state exists only because God allows it. So, across the world, Nations exist and existed for as long as, as we have history. And they exist because God allows them to exist. 
They're intended to provide for the justice and peace that God demands of all his people. Unfortunately, says Barman, this is done by fiat, by force and by threat. As the rule, as the ruled, we bear responsibility to trust and obey the power of the word of God and no other. And so we always have a word to speak to power. Right? I mean, that's the job of the church. is to speak a word, the word, to people in power. Because they're supposed to be living out the kingdom on behalf of God, and God allows them to exist to do that. Judgment will come not only against individuals, but judgment will come against nations in the end. And so, as the ruled, we are people who are intended to pay attention to how government does. Again, this isn't partisan. This is the whole thing. So they went on to say, in each article, they do the next thing. So you can keep going. So take that down again. Keep going through. Oh, there you go. That's good. So they make this statement. We reject the false doctrine as though the state, over and beyond its special commission, should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life. In other words, politics can't be the center of who you are. It can't occupy the place that God intends. And government never takes the place of God, ever. As though... Um, over and beyond a special commission, should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life, thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. The state cannot fulfill our vocation, our calling. It can be a tool that God can use, but it can't fulfill the kingdom of God. We call the state to account to fulfill what is just and right in accordance with the scripture, something you are striving to accomplish. But politics is not eternal. It is not the kingdom of God. Nor are countries, nor are nations, nor are kingdoms. So C.S. Lewis put it, all of those things, their lives compared to ours as the lives of gnats. Nations, all of that will pass. What's eternal are the people God loves. Your neighbor. The person you yet have yet to meet. Your enemy. Not just people you like. And there's one, one more statement. We also reject the false doctrine as though the church, over and beyond its special commission, should and could appropriate the characteristics, the tasks, and the dignity of the state, thus itself becoming an organ of the state. Do you see what they're doing in Barman? Do you see how they're speaking to the church, the state church, and then to the, to the Nazi government? 
Do you see what they're doing? We reject your presuppositions. We reject the foundations you're building on because ours are different. And the church will not be your mouthpiece. And the church, the national church, during all those years, was the mouthpiece for the Nazis. We are not citizens of worldly states. And we serve only one ruler. We serve Jesus Christ. How is this? Well, Peter says, first, we do it by abstaining from the desires of the flesh. We usually translate that as sex, but um, that's really not what he's thinking about at this point. There's a whole lot of other desires of the flesh. Um, or um, the word that sometimes gets translated here is lust. I was with a group of uh, men from the church on Thursday, and they were talking about this and saying it's anything that consumes us, that drives us, anything that holds our gaze and our desire, that seeks to give us some power of something. And we are called then uh, to abstain from the lust for power and control, the bloodlust that dem- uh, was demonstrated and, uh, in the Colosseum. Remember last week we talked about the stones that, of the, the building we're to be built into? And Peter is thinking of something different than the big monuments of his time, one of which was the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was a culture of bloodlust. People went to be entertained by seeing people killed. That's the kind of lust that Peter's thinking about in the empire. So we abstain. We live lives that are a contrast to to the public demeanor, the way people think things are. So think about it this way. I, I have this lovely guitar that I get a chance to play. And, uh, you know, Sean gets to, to make guitars. And, and uh, I love the artistry in this whole thing. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. So you can't see. But um, these guitars, this is a, ooh, that could be interesting. Um, guitars are, are, are made up of, this one's made up of completely of different kinds of wood. Um, all the little appointments on it are all natural and, and wooden. Uh, makes it very special in some ways. There's a little bit of abalone on this thing and some mother of pearl, but it, it has some remarkable pieces to it. But one of the things that's this top is just this uh, kind of beige-ish, uh, nice color of, of uh, uh, Engelman spruce. And on the very edges, it's a thing called purfling. And it's a guitar maker's accent. And what they do is they uh, put these, this purfling around the edges. The purpose is to make the uh, top of the guitar stand out a little bit. You can all come up and look at it afterwards. But it's, it's this idea that it's a contrast. There's always a black line that goes right next to the wood. It's not a colored line. It's black. Because it creates just a little tiny visual gap, and it makes the top stand out, makes it pop. 
It's like that in, in Van Gogh's irises. The, if you look at irises in nature, they don't have little black lines around them. But you look at Van Gogh's painting, and there's black around the irises. It creates a contrast. It makes it pop. Friends, you're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be like that. A contrast to the status quo. Something different. The state may be charged with maintaining the peace, but the kingdom of God actually brings peace among the people. We're not just talking about a superficial understanding of peace. We're talking about the fact that you and I are called to bring peace to one another. And where peace doesn't exist, we need to go back and work at that. The 12 Steps program, remember? The idea is if you've wronged somebody or if there's something out of whack because of your behavior, then what do you do? You go back, you try to make it as right as you can if it isn't going to do harm to somebody. But you go back, you engage it. You don't let it fester. If we are divided, then to live in contrast would be to become a healing, peace-inducing body. That would be the contrast to the way the world works. In a time where we are becoming more and more divided as a people, the world needs us more than ever to be God's people. Not partisan people. Partisan for the kingdom. Jesus is a study in contrast living showing us in his life what it means to be a subject in the kingdom of God. I'd like you to think with me, something I've thought of for a long time, and this is someplace where I really could be wrong um, in my thinking, though I don't think I am. Otherwise I wouldn't say this. So, the Enlightenment, an 18th century description of a series of Thinking and philosophies. In the 18th century, Christendom, the, the idea that the church uh, controlled uh, people's thinking and controlled uh, the information of what's true and right, that, um, that the church was at the center of things, like every village in, in Europe, where the, if you, even today, if you're going by on the train, you want to know where the center of town is, just look out of the village and you see a steeple. Every little village throughout Germany is like that. And the church is at the center of things. And what was happening beginning back then was the church in, uh, in the thinking of, of people, of modern people, it was beginning to move to the edge. And then we get this idea, I think, therefore I am. This very self-centered way of claiming um, a kind of individualism that we are all part of. In the Enlightenment, there were values that um, people were trying to come to grips with and trying to maintain a set of values in a world that was abandoning its old values. It comes out of France, it comes out of, of Europe, and many of our uh, founding uh, uh, fathers of this country were students of what was going on in the Enlightenment. And in our Declaration of Independence, it says this, that we are um, given a certain uh, 
a group of inalienable rights, three of which are our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are divine in nature, it says, and they're the things that we should protect for ourselves. Let me suggest a kingdom contrast to those three values. And then we can have a conversation if you want, or a debate. I think it would be great. Um, The kingdom contrast to this, not that we should protect these things for others, not that we, we shouldn't protect these things for others, but it's how we do it, that we don't do it by threat, and we don't do it by force. So think about the contrast. Life. The New Testament tells us that you and I have a right to what? To die to ourselves and live to Christ. You and I have a calling and a right to do what? To lay down our lives for our friends, for our neighbors. We have a right to let go of this life for the sake of a greater life. That's a kingdom contrast with the values of, of even our country and of other countries. Liberty, freedom. Even our text this morning says, don't let your freedom become something that you use for your own selfish needs. Christians have the right to be what? Servants and slaves of all. Isn't that amazing? You read through the New Testament and the followers of Jesus at the, at, right at the heart of who, what it means to be a disciple gives you a contrast to the values of our world. That we are not a people that demand our liberties, but we're willing to be the servants of all. Slaves. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. One of the members of our of the group on Thursday said that happiness, no, I, I, I hate that word. And, and, and what he was saying was this, I think, if I get this right. And that is that it sounds superficial. That happiness, personal happiness, isn't the goal. And, uh, and I, I agree that Christians are not called to mere happiness, but to a deeper sense of wholeness. There's a book some years ago by a well-known pastor in our area called The Be Happy Attitudes. He translated the Sermon on the Mount that way, and I thought, oh man, you don't get it, do you? Um, That's not what he's writing about. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is there is a deeper sense of well-being and wholeness that we're to be a part of. Shalom would be the Hebrew word. Not just peace on the surface, but a deep abiding sense that all things are well. It is well with my soul. We have sang it earlier. And things really are the way they should be. So Christians 
have a right and a duty to die to ourselves. We have a right and a duty to be slaves and servants of others and all. We have the right and the duty to work towards the wholeness and goodness of every human being. Nothing superficial about these things. Peter says, live like this and you'll be the contrast wherever you are. You will, sh- you will make a difference. You will show the difference of being aligned with the King, of being aligned with Jesus, if you live this way. I am so glad in Scripture that we are not given a list to check off where we can go by and, and Jesus or the disciples just said, well, do these six things and you'll be fine. Thankfully, God is smarter than that and says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let me suggest to you this morning that you hear the truth. What is God asking of you? And that you work that out with fear and trembling and a whole lot of humility to know that we could all be wrong. Pray with me. God, it's hard to know exactly how your kingdom translates into our midst, into alliances that we've developed over time, of things that we've bought into, of things that we care about. And God, we ask that um, you would show us the way, that we would, with fear and trembling, work this out, knowing that uh, if we go down a wrong path, that you can redeem us, knowing that if we go in a wrong way, you can correct that. And you have a way for us to come back as we confess and receive your forgiveness. Help us to follow in your way. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and sing together.